Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah 54 as our Old Testament text this morning. Isaiah 54 is page 848 in the Church Bible. Page 848, if you'd like to follow along. Isaiah 54, we'll read the whole chapter. Brothers and sisters, this is the very Word of God. Let's give it our full attention. Sing, O barren, you who have not borne. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, For as I've sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they they shall surely assemble But not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. In our New Testament text, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12, this is our sermon text for this morning. If you'd like to turn there, it's page 1,358 in the church Bibles. We saw there in Isaiah that the Lord is promising to His people that after the exile, they'll be restored. And He doesn't just mean a few small you know, a remnant brought back from Babylon. He means, he means that the, the nations will be brought in. And then he says, 
that he himself will teach his people. And that's what we see fulfilled here in 1 Thessalonians 4. We see the Gentiles, part of this church now in Thessalonica, these are the nations being brought in in fulfillment of Isaiah 54. And what we see is that Paul says, God himself is the one who teaches you in these words. So let's read now 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. This is the word of God. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask his blessing on it. Father, once again, we bow before you humbly. We recognize that, that this work, the work of proclaiming your word and the work of hearing your word in faith is not a work we can produce in ourselves. We pray that you, by your spirit, would come and work supernaturally in us by your word. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. It's been a few weeks since we were in 1 Thessalonians. We took a short break uh, from, from 1 Thessalonians to look at our shepherding groups and, and um, look at a few texts regarding shepherding. So as we get back into 1 Thessalonians now, I'm just going to take a few minutes to bring us up to speed. We're in chapter 4. Uh, so we're, we're coming up on, on, we're well past halfway. We're coming up towards the end of the letter. Paul spent the first three chapters uh, in this letter not telling the Thessalonians really to do anything yet. Uh, We saw commands by implication of what he was saying. But in those first three chapters, he doesn't really give them much in the way of outright commands or outright instruction. It's it's, It's three chapters of thanking God for them and reminding them of his love for them, Paul's love for them, and of their love for him. He's, he's, he's been spending all this time, uh, verse after verse, giving thanks for them and reflecting on their close relationship that he has with them. Remember, this is a, this is a church that has suffered greatly. Uh, they, they, uh, they were founded by Paul. He, he came and he, he preached the gospel to them. He's there for three weeks. And then three weeks into this church's existence, persecution comes. Paul has to flee in the night to escape. And, uh, and, and things are hard for the Thessalonian Christians. But Paul writes this letter because he's heard that they're doing well. And he's rejoicing in God that their faith, hope, and love are all increasing and abounding. And so he's, he's been talking about these things. But then he comes to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, and then on to chapter 5, he's going to spend the rest of this letter instructing them. So, so here, comes the, here comes the commands, here comes the teaching. Practical instruction and teaching on doctrine. And he, he frames the whole discussion in chapter 4, verse 1. And we looked at this last, last time we were in Thessalonians. Chapter 4, 1 says this. Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Paul says, live to please God. That's the instruction we gave you, and that's the instruction we're continuing to give you. Live a life that is entirely directed at pleasing God. 
There's a vast difference, isn't there, between living an upright and good life by the world standards and living a life that is directed in everything towards God. Paul's going to go on. He's going to give some instruction on how to live a moral, upright, good life. But he wants the whole thing to be in this context, under this heading. Live to please God. You could be as you could have all the integrity in the world by man's standards. You could have the integrity Billy Graham had, and you could still not live to please God. You could you could be a secular person who lives with great integrity, but you're not doing it to please the Lord. Or you could be you know follow another religion, but you're not doing it to please the Lord if you don't walk to please Him. So Paul says, live to please God. Then he turns his attention on one issue in particular that's very relevant to the Thessalonians, and that is the issue of sexual sin. This was, a, this was a time period and a place that was steeped in sexual sin. They were saturated with it. It was everywhere. Uh, these, and these are Gentiles who've been converted out of that life and out of that lifestyle, come into the church now, come into the Christian faith. Paul says, please God by walking in holiness and purity and not the sexual sins of the culture around you. That's how Paul argues, 4 verse 1 through 4 verse 8. And now we come to our text this morning, verses 9 through 12, and he's continuing on the same idea, live to please God. How, Paul? Love one another. This is, this is his next point. So he's saying, don't live like the non-Christians around you, like the world around you in sexual sin. That's what you don't do. That's what you put off. Here's what you are to pursue and increase in. Loving one another. Brothers and sisters, this is a vital command, an urgent command. What will please God? How can, how can I live? How can you live to please Him? How can we as a church please Him? Well, it's by living in love with one another. See how the, you see how the vertical and the horizontal aspects of the Christian life are related here. God says, this is how I want you to please me, by loving each other. We cannot love God and want to please Him without loving the church and those in the church. Think of it like parents uh, saying to their children, if you want to please me, stop fighting with your siblings. Share the ball. That's what God is saying. Stop fighting with one another. Love one another if you want to please me. It's not an, an, it's not a, it's not an extra. It's not an optional thing. It's not an extra credit assignment that we love one another. This is the bread and butter of our Christian obedience. Paul's already touched on this earlier in the letter. He says back in chapter 2, What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. That's how Paul loves this church. That's how he calls them to love one another. Indeed, this is, uh, this is uh, the distinguishing mark, isn't it? This is what marks out the Christian community as, as those who follow Christ. What does Jesus say over in John 13? Well-known words. John 13, verses 34 through 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love. For one another. So the church should be marked by this. It should be like a flashing neon sign saying, this is where people who follow Christ are. And we can see that because of their love for each other. 
All right, let's let's dive into the text. So so that's 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 the context as we uh, resituate ourselves in First Thessalonians chapter four. Let's dive in. We're going to work through the text here with five headings. I know that sounds like a lot, but hopefully they'll be shorter than the typical three-heading sermon uh, headings are. So, let's dive in. Paul begins in verse 9, our first heading, the source of brotherly love. The source of brotherly love. Paul says, verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Paul says he wants to see brotherly love. He's writing about the love between brothers and sisters in a family. This is a kind of love. Think about the context here. Think about what's going on in Thessalonica. What's happened to these Christians? Well, they've been, their parents maybe have disowned them. Siblings, maybe. Maybe maybe children have, uh, maybe parents have turned to the faith and children haven't. And so families have been shattered by the gospel broken apart as, as division comes in, as some believe and some don't. And Paul says, well, here, here's your new family. The church is to be filled with that family-like love. This, this word for brotherly love um, isn't typically used in Greek to refer to love outside of a natural family. This is, this is love that's unique to the family. In our culture, the term brotherly love is I think generally it come to mean something more like just being kind and and uh, is generally a nice guy with those around you. Um, but that's not at all what brotherly love, what family love is, is it? What's family love like? It's committed. It's loyal. There might not be a love that's more committed and more loyal than a love between members of a family. Paul is saying God has brought you into his family. He's made you brothers and sisters in Christ. He's brought together opposites. He's brought together Jews and Gentiles. He's brought together people who used to be different social standings and hate each other, and he's brought them into one family together. Male and female, slave and free, he brings them all together. God brings them all together in this one new family in Christ. And these people who never would have associated with each other before are now calling each other brother and sister in this family of believers. And they're living in, in, in humble, self-giving love for each other. Paul sees this at the church in Thessalonica. And he's glad about it. He rejoices in it. He sees this clearly there. He doesn't uh, have to write to them about this, he says. He says, we don't actually need to instruct you about how to love one another. You're already doing it well. They've already been taught by God, he says. And that's where we see this idea of the source of this brotherly love come in, right? They've been taught how to love one another like this by God. That's a, that's a huge statement. That's a statement with such big implications, brothers and sisters. This kind of love that Paul is seeing in the Thessalonians, that we want to see here in our church too, which we do see and we want to see increase, this kind of love is something only God can teach. We compared it to the natural love that a family might have for its family members. But, but this is a supernatural family. And this is not a natural kind of love. This is a God-taught love. And as we saw in our reading in Isaiah 54, this is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy that, that, uh, 
that, that God made to the people of Israel back in the Old Testament. Right? We saw Isaiah 54, 13. It says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord. So this, was a, this, this hope that Israel had was, was built in. There's going to come a day in the last days when the Messiah comes, when God himself will teach us. And here Paul is saying, this has happened. Christ has come. The Messiah has come. And now God is teaching us. But he's not just teaching Jews this. He's, he's bringing in the Gentiles to teach them how to love one another in the community of God's covenant people. God has sent his spirit to accomplish this. Right before our text here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12, through 12, right back in verse 8, Paul actually references how God has given these people the Spirit. And then he goes on in verse 9 and says this, The Lord, by His Spirit, implied by His Spirit, has taught you to love one another. So this is how they'll learn to love each other in this family of God. When, when everything else seems to be against them, God's given him, them His Holy Spirit to be their teacher. To teach them not this cold and intellectual only lesson, but to teach them how to love one another. How does the Holy Spirit teach us to love one another? Well, what's the Spirit's task? What's He do? He takes the things of Christ and He applies them to us. The Spirit opens the Word, opens our eyes to the Word so we can see it and know it and believe it. He shows us Christ. He unites us to Christ. Gives us a relationship with Christ. So do you see, this is also then, this must, if this is how the Spirit works, this is how He must teach us. By showing us Christ in the Word of God. Giving us faith in Christ. And as He shows us Christ, what we see is how Christ Himself loved us. Right? That's how God teaches His people this lesson of how to love each other. He shows them how Christ loved them. Isn't this what Jesus Himself does? John 13, he's speaking to his disciples there. Jesus gets up from the table. He, he, he has the place of honor at the table. He's the teacher. He's the master over his disciples. But he gets up from the table. He gets down on his knees. And he washes all their feet. And he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another the way I have loved you. He's showing them. He's teaching them how to love by his very example, by his life. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are going to be a church that's filled with this kind of brotherly, family love for one another, we must, need, we must have the source of that love. We must be taught by God. And that means we must see the love of Christ for us. We must be in union with Him. We must be branches attached to the vine that is Christ if we're going to have the sap of His love flowing through us, making us able to love each other. That is the source. That is how God teaches us to love one another. Paul sees the Thessalonians doing this. He commends them for it, and he says, do it more. And that's what we see next. The scope of brotherly love. The scope of brotherly love. So the church in Thessalonica is this model church. They love one another well. But this love isn't just limited to their own group of believers. It extends out. Uh, Paul says this, Indeed, and he's, verse, verse 10, he says, And indeed, you do so, you love like this, toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. This is remarkable here, isn't it? This young church, brand new church, 
And they are already known for their love through the whole region of Macedonia. Part of Paul's goal in his missionary journeys is not just to plant isolated churches, but to, but to plant churches that have relationships with each other, that are connected with each other, so they weren't, wouldn't be isolated, so they'd see that God's purposes were bigger than for any one individual church to support each other, hold each other accountable. And the church in Thessalonica is doing well with this, Paul says. He writes about these churches in Macedonia, actually, to the church in Corinth. Over in Corinthians, Paul writes about these Macedonian believers. He holds them up again as an example. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, where Thessalonica is, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This brotherly love characterizes Thessalonica characterizes the other churches in Macedonia in this region. They're, they're, they've never met these other believers, but they're giving to them, they're supporting them, they're praying for them, they're sacrificing for them, they're loving them. Brothers and sisters, this is why, as a church, we aren't an isolated church. We see that our church has a place in a wider body of Christ, and this is why we see connections with other churches. This is why we're part of a presbytery. Because we believe that we're called not just to love one another in our church, but to, but to love Christ's body and, and support his body even among believers we've not met before. This is why we have what we call sister churches, part of a larger spiritual family that we're called to love. This, this model of a, of a church bigger than one small local church is a model we see all over the New Testament, and it pops up. It pops up here. This is why we pray like we do in our prayers for uh, our, the mission works of our denomination, and our, our, our church in Farmington, the, the church plant there that we contribute to and support to. This, this is our Macedonia, if you will, our, our presbytery. We're called to love our sister churches. Paul says you're doing this well. Go on and do it more. And that's our, that's our third point, the mandate for brotherly love. So we've seen the source of brotherly love, the scope of brotherly love, and now he turns to the mandate for brotherly love. Look with me. In verse 10, Paul says, And indeed, you do so, you love like this, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Paul says, you're doing well, but keep on in it. Increase in it. Grow in it. And again, this isn't something that... um, Paul doesn't want them to just reach a static point on this. He wants them to to be improving and increasing in this. He commands them to. So, brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves very carefully, are we increasing in this kind of family love for our church and for other churches around us? Right? The question isn't, do we love one another? I'm sure we, we say we do. Are we increasing in loving? Are we growing in it? Do we as a church love one another more than we did five years ago, ten years ago? Are, are we increasing in this? 
That's what Paul is calling the church to, this family-like love, this, this loyalty and commitment and sacrificial kindness that we're to extend towards one another. Now, as we think about this command that Paul is giving this church here, um, there are two dangers that can come into view. As, as we think about Paul commanding the church here, love one another, love one another more and more. One of the commentators points out that Paul is guarding against two dangers here. He's warning us, obviously, against the danger of not loving each other. That's a big danger in the church. But he also, interestingly, really keys in on loving one another too much in the wrong way. That's also a danger. Listen to the words of the commentator here. He says, The other danger to avoid regarding love is to show too much of it in the wrong way. We can go too far with this sense of brotherly love and allow people to be irresponsible. So that's what I want to look at next in Paul's words in verses 11 to 12. The manner, our fourth heading, the manner of brotherly love. So Paul is seen this in the church, he's seen the scope of it, he's seen the source of it, he's commanded more of it, and now he says, and here is, here's some instruction on how you should be loving one another. What does this love look like? Paul seems to have a particular concern that the church here might actually be overdoing it. Not that they're loving too much. Uh, we could not do that. But there are some among them who are apparently taking advantage of their generosity taking advantage of how much they love one another. And these people aren't working to support themselves. They're becoming uh, dependent on others, not loving one another because they're, uh, because they're, they're, they're uh, imposing on one another. Paul says in verse 11, in verse 11 he, he calls them to lead, he says, leading a quiet life, minding their own business, working with their own hands. That's how we're to love one another. Surprising, isn't it? Uh, Paul would say that. Let's, let's unpack what he means here. He gives three commands in quick succession, one after the other. First, he says, aspire to lead a quiet life. How do you love? Aspire to lead a quiet life. Make it your ambition to, to, to lead a simple, unobtrusive life. Not trying to draw attention to yourself. Not trying to do something wonderful and, and impressive. Just trying to please God. Right To bring it back to 4 verse 1. Paul doesn't want the church virtue signaling. He doesn't want them uh, uh, trying to make sure everyone knows how much they love each other and knows how, uh, how, how good they are. He wants them to live before the face of God, content if God sees them, not concerned about if others see them and notice them. Paul says, make this your ambition, make this your goal. Right? How, how is it loving for us to do this? Why, why is it loving when we aspire to lead a quiet life? Well, it, 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 uh, it communicates that we're not treating ourselves as, as self-important. We're communicating to people humility. It takes humility to lead a quiet life. It takes love for others more than yourself to lead a quiet life. Right? You can't be self-absorbed and, 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 and uh, self-oriented uh, and, and love like this. You have to be self-forgetful to love like this. So Paul says, lead a quiet life. Love one another by not putting your needs and your life at the center of other people's needs and life. The second command he gives here about this manner of love is that um, we are to mind our own business. 
Paul says, love one another by minding your own business. Very similar to what he just said about leading a quiet life here. One commentator says, Paul is talking about the kind of person who does not do his or her work, but hangs around while you are trying to do your work. People who aren't contributing anything. They're just there. They're, they're hanging around, distracting. They're taking. They're not giving. They're receiving instead of producing. They're, they're abusing the generosity of the church. Not just financially, but relationally too. It's putting a strain on the church. Apparently these busybodies are, are those who aren't working because Paul then goes on and says, work with your own hands as we commanded you. He says you need to be at work, you need to be busy with work, not busy with other people's business. We we're not sure why this problem was in the Thessalonian church. Um, some people have thought it's because they had a wrong view of Christ's return, that Christ is coming soon, therefore we don't need to be working, we need to just be, be praying and, and getting ready for him to return, not doing our work. Um, others, other people say the reason this problem was in the church was because they had this patron-client relationship in Thessalonica where a wealthy patron would financially support people dependent on him and they wouldn't work. They'd just go around promoting their patron. And Paul says, don't, don't be like that. Work with your own hands. John Stott writes this. He says, true, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need. But it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. Loved ones, as we think about this for ourselves, uh, how, how, do we, how do we apply this to ourselves? Uh, I think Paul's words here about leading a quiet life and in, and in doing that, loving one another well by doing that, uh, those are important words for us to hear in our culture. Our culture loves a big production and a big show. It loves, it loves drama and excitement, the flash and the bang. Right? But Paul says, lead a quiet life. We're not called to be loud and dramatic and flashy and showy. We are called to follow Christ faithfully, do our work well, point to His gospel, live out quiet lives in obedience to Him with our, with our focus not ever being on, on putting ourselves forward as, as an example or, or putting ourselves forward as some kind of uh, uh, so, something excellent. We're not at the center of God's work on earth, but, but seeing ourselves in our place before God where our desire is simply to please Him, to please Him, not to draw attention from others. One hymn, one hymn puts it this way. He says, the author in the hymn says, I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied and a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. And if some things I do not ask in my cup of blessing be, I would have my spirit filled the more with grateful love to thee, more careful not to serve thee much, but to please Thee perfectly. In service which Thy will appoints, there are no bonds for me, for my inmost heart is taught the truth that makes Thy children free. A life of self-renouncing love is a life of liberty. The author says, I'm content to fill a little space if God is glorified in that. Content to live a quiet life if God is glorified in that. It's the same attitude of Count von Zinzendorf, a theologian in the 18th century, who said, who said famously, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Live the Christian life, die, and be forgotten. 
our aim is not to, to please man. Our aim is to please God. John the Baptist, he must increase. Christ must increase. I must decrease. Loved ones, let us make this our ambition. Let's work hard to lead quiet lives of loving one another for God's sake, to please him. Let's not be busybodies. Let's not be uh, trying to uh, be a drain on on others. And and let's not take advantage of, of the generosity and the love of one another. Let's support ourselves and let's love one another well. Why should we do all this? That's what we see in our our fifth heading. The motivation for brotherly love. Why should we do this? This is hard work. Loving one another in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ is hard work. Let's be honest. Uh, uh, We do come from many different backgrounds. We we, we would perhaps, if we weren't in the church, we would perhaps not be close with one another. We have many different interests and, and, and Paul's commands us, in spite of these things, to love one another well. So what motivates us? What motivates us when we do sin against one another and harm each other? When we do abuse one another's generosity? What what do we do? Paul says, love one another. Here are the reasons why. He gives two. First, he says, uh, in verse 12, I'm going to start with the second reason he gives, because I think it's secondary. He says at the end of verse 12, we ought to love like this so that we may lack nothing. Love like this, by living a quiet life, loving one another, providing for your own needs. Love like this so that you don't lack and that you're not a burden on others. Do this because it keeps you from, from being a burden and a drain on others and on the church. It's a worthwhile goal. But the other reason he gives is what I want to really pay attention to here. The first reason he gives why we should love one another like this. He says it's that it will provide a powerful witness to the watching world. Paul says, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, outside the church. That's, that's what should motivate the Thessalonians and, and what should now motivate us to love one another. This is our witness to the world. We walk properly toward outsiders when we love each other in this quiet, God-focused and humble way. Again, Jesus said this, didn't he? John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The early church seems, in, in, in some ways, not every time, look at a church, some churches were full of divisions, but, but in many ways we see signs of the early church doing this well, of, of how they excelled in this. The third century theologian, Tertullian, said that the Romans were... Uh, uh, would see the Christians and they'd, they'd say, look how they love each other. See how the Christians love each other. Justin Martyr, another early church guy, wrote this. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another, and we refused to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. This love permeated these early congregations, and it was a powerful witness to the watching world. So, loved ones, this is, um, this is a key aspect of our witness, too. Loving one another, leading a quiet, ordinary Christian life, living to please God. 
This is the mark of the church. This is the mark of the age of the Holy Spirit when he's come on the church, even as Isaiah 54 promised. This is the mark of the Spirit of Christ at work in us and among us. Right? Not, not, not drama, not, um, not signs and wonders and things that are pointing to the supernatural power of God in that way. No, the Spirit comes and he teaches us to love each other. And that's where people see. That's where the Spirit of God is. Only the Holy Spirit could accomplish that. Isn't that what we see in, in our Lord Jesus? Yes, we see him working signs and wonders powerfully to point to who he is and to authenticate his ministry. But, but what does he do most powerfully? He shows us the love of God for us by his life and by his death. He didn't come seeking fame. He didn't come putting himself forward. He, he was born in a barn in Bethlehem. He grew up in a backwater town in Nazareth. And he spends the majority of his life doing what? Obeying his parents. Being a good brother. Doing the work he has to do quietly. Leading a quiet life. No one knows who he is. Until he comes to his earthly ministry in those final three years or so. And then he proclaims who he is as the Son of God. But even then, right, what's he doing? He's, he's laying himself down to die for his people. He comes humbly proclaiming the kingdom of God, yes, with authority, but also in meekness and obedience. Showing us the love of God for us, demonstrating it for us. So, brothers and sisters, that's our example, isn't it? Christ himself. He's our Savior, and uh, he's the one we're called to follow, so let's follow him in that manner of life, uh, seeking to, to love one another as brothers and sisters. But, but he's not just our example. He's also our Savior, and that's where our hope is. Because we fail in this. We fail to love one another as we've been called to. We fail to lead quiet lives. If we do, maybe it's because of shyness that we're leading them. Or, or we fail to lead quiet lives, loving one another, and we seek uh, praise from other and, and acceptance from one another rather than seeking to serve and love each other for God's sake. The Lord Jesus is our hope. His perfect, God-pleasing life for us. So let's trust Him. And let's follow Him. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we pray that you would conform us more and more by Christ to Christ. We pray that you yourself would teach us to love one another. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.